Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to Sox Machine Live. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, as we are streaming the show live on Mixler.com slash Sox Machine on Thursday night, May 9th. As earlier today, the Chicago White Sox lost 5 to nothing in six innings as the final third of the game was called due to rain. But the Chicago White Sox won the first two games and split the road series against the Indians, which is always good, uh, especially playing at Progressive Field, which has been a nightmare for the White Sox in the past, as they are now 16-20 and 20 in 2019. We'll recap as far as the White Sox-Indians series and preview the upcoming series against the Toronto Blue Jays. And at the end of the show, we'll talk about Albert Pujols as he reaches another milestone in his career. Joining me, of course, is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast is Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. I don't think with the way that Carlos Carrasco was pitching that the White Sox were going to be coming back uh, in that game. So maybe the rain was a bit of a mercy play. Uh, but overall, I'm satisfied with how these four games went for the White Sox. How about you? Uh, kind of. You know, I think it's always disappointing a little bit when you win the first two games of a series and then you end up settling for a split. But, uh, you know, beating Trevor Bauer resoundingly is fun and not to be underappreciated, even if they did lose the last two games. And, uh, yeah, when it came to Carlos Carrasco, I kind of felt the same way about Shane Bieber pitching the day before, and then that turned around in a hurry. So, you know, perhaps you know, if they uh, got to the late innings in that one, it would have been like, uh, I guess, the Ricky's boys of a couple weeks ago to where they couldn't hit starters and did all their run scoring in the last three innings. But probably doubt it, given Carrasco's history overall and uh, given how the lineup just kind of, I guess, ebbs and flows. And right now I think it's in a bit of an ebb. Yeah, since the start of 2017 in his last eight starts against the White Sox, Carlos Carrasco has allowed... Eight earned runs <laughs> with like 74 strikeouts to eight walks. So the White Sox have not fared well. They used to 
They used to. They did. They hit Carlos Carrasco really well in 2015 and 2016. But since 2017, Carlos Carrasco has really dominated the White Sox. Uh, so hopefully one day soon the White Sox can figure out a way to beat Carlos Carrasco in the near future. But my biggest takeaway from this series, and maybe it was the most complete game, even though you don't really want to say complete game when an offense only scores two runs, but I thought winning game two, the game on Tuesday, when the offense could only manage two runs, uh, that Lucas Giolito was absolutely terrific in this start. And he did something for the first time since Gavin Floyd, a White Sox right-handed starter, pitching more than seven scoreless innings in Cleveland. And I think Gavin Floyd lasted that in 2009. So it's been a minute uh, since hmm. a White Sox pitcher has pulled that off. Uh, you know, with Lucas Giolito, I'm beginning to wonder, Jim, with Carlos Rodon being out for the foreseeable future, maybe Giolito's the leader of the staff, or at least maybe the best performing starter that they have. Can we chalk up everything to him shoring his throwing motion? I think you can chart uh, uh, a lot of it to that, just having a more repeatable delivery, having a, you know, the, the control lapses occasionally happen. You know, he does have some longer uh, plate appearances than you'd like to see, and he does have some some counts where he gets ahead 0-2 and then has to throw eight pitches to get the batter out. And, yeah, I, I think that's partially a young pitcher, still partially a pitcher who, you know, I guess is not elite. <laughs> I think a lot of, you know, uh, uh, pitchers have that kind of battle that's, uh, Giolito's had, but I think that that arm swing really shortens the amount of uh, batters that he's out of his rhythm. Yeah, I think he's able to get back into it, and then seems to be playing up his changeup a lot better. I mean, he only threw four breaking balls against the Cleveland all day out of I think 104 pitches, 105. Uh, so yeah, just having uh, that kind of command with your fastball and changeup, and and just being able to kind of seesaw between the two of them and not really have to introduce the breaking ball or have to figure it out or or you know i guess hone it and have to command it uh that's that's a hell of a trick do you think that now the changeup is his best pitch out of his arsenal probably um i guess when it comes to sliders and curveballs it seems i always remember what steve stone says about it that you can have one or the other in a lot of cases it's hard to command both uh unless maybe you throw more of a cutter and where you're throwing it with more of a fastball grip than like a uh, a slider where you're really spinning it and you're trying to spin two pitches in two different planes. But uh, it seems like, especially maybe in cold weather, uh, we've talked about it before in the podcast, we've been asked about it in P.O. Sox before about Giolito having really bad cold weather months and, and looking better as the season goes on. And maybe, you know, if he does have a tendency to not uh, have a good feel for pitches or maybe, you know, I guess, get thrown off by cold weather and I guess being, you know, having to work from the stretch and so forth. And maybe that is an advantage that changeup gives him is maybe it's not his best pitch in terms of knee buckling or, you know, pure swing and miss dominance, but when it's cold and when he needs to have something just to get hitters off his fastball, that's probably the one pitch he can go to on you know a regular basis, whether it's early in the game, later in the game, cold weather, hot weather, what have you. You know, you make a good point with Steve Stone talking about curveballs and sliders, obviously within a, a month of the Major League Baseball draft, I've been watching a lot of college pitchers. And I've been noticing that, especially right-handed starters, that they try to throw both pitches, but they only throw the curveball against right-handers, and they only throw the sliders against left-handers, trying to bust each type of batter 
inside in these plate appearances. And uh, I never really thought about it because, yeah, it does seem when you're watching a starter, they're only effective with one of those pitches. Either the slider is working that day or the curveball is. But I do think, you know, with Lucas Giolito, I mean, we always heard about this fastball and he has this great curveball when the White Sox acquired him. But I find it a bit funny that now it's the changeup. That's the best-looking pitch for Lucas Giolito. And the other thing, too, is that he's really regained at least some of his velocity. And I know that there's a difference between the velocity of the gun and perceived velocity. Baseball Prospectus has wrote a lot about this, about even though on the gun, like, for example, remember Chris Young, right, with the Mm -hmm. Kansas City Royals? He may only be hitting hitting 89 miles per hour on the gun, but the hitters will tell you it's coming in a lot faster because he's 6'11", and by the time he lets go of the ball, uh, it, it's a much shorter distance for Chris Young than average starters. And with Lucas Giolito being 6'8", do you think maybe that's what's helping with his perceived velocity, that it appears that he has regained some of the lost miles per hour in his fastball that we saw last year. Yeah, there is a velocity jump. I think the height does play into the deception. I think also from what Renteria was saying, what Giolito was saying about the shorter arm swing, that that plays into deception, just making it harder for hitters to see the ball when he had the really long arm swing. You could see the ball behind him, then you could see it coming around. It wasn't like Nate Jones where he's showing the ball to the hitter and then firing it. It was more just a long course to where the batter could see it, lose it, then pick it up again. And with the shorter arm swing, from what hitters are saying, from what uh, uh, you know, people on the ground are saying, that it's able he's able to hide it a bit. And so I think that plays into it too. But I think that uh, you know the height um, has been a factor for him because when he was coming with his fastball and and. I think one of the criticisms was that he didn't have a really great spin rate on his fastball and that he wasn't able to really like get his four seamer to ride. Uh, you know, maybe that's the case where the analytics say that, uh, yeah, yeah, he should have less success. This four seamer, it should, I guess, flirt a little bit with the territory to where he, you know, the, the, the fastball sinks into the hitter's swing plane. But, you know, if you're that tall and if you're starting ever so closer to the plate than most pitchers maybe that counteracts whatever spin he's not getting and mm. it serves the same purpose of letting the fastball rider higher ride a higher plane and he's able to contain or i guess contain that fastball like the upper third of the strike zone better than a lot of pitchers and then that changeup plays well off that yeah because i asked dylan cease when i was in charlotte about his high fastball if he does that on purpose and he he does. I mean, it helps combat hitters, especially those hitters that are trying to get more launch in their swings. And when you pair it up with Cease, it's his curveball. The curve comes out of the hand on the same plane as the fastball, and then it just drops on you. And that's why we get to see these really silly, ridiculous swings for Dylan Cease. I don't think Lucas Giolito is getting ridiculous swings, but it's been so effective. He really kept the Indians hitters off balance and and there are some that were concerned and they were tweeting at me Jim that are, are we sure that a high changeup is going to be effective long term because if these guys wait back on the changeup they're going to crush them uh do you think that this is a sustainable strategy where Giolito could still continue to live up in the strike zone with a 95 mile per hour fastball but then pair that with a changeup that has a little bit of movement, especially moving away from left-handed hitters, that sits at about 82-83. 
Well, I think ideally his changeup doesn't hang, but I, I think when he was pitching against the Indians, he did get away with some just because of the velocity change. Um, you know, I think uh, James Fegan wrote about Alex Gordon saying it wasn't a great changeup, and it wasn't saying that necessarily to knock Gilito or say like that we should have hit him better. I think you're saying that they've seen more tail, more fade, uh, more deception, but for whatever reason, they were seeing it okay, but the bet wasn't seeing it. The barrel wasn't getting to the ball where they thought it was going to be for one reason or another. And uh, it, that seems to be the case to where like he did get away with some, and that's partially, I think, attributable to the Cleveland lineup being pretty bad. But I, I think there's something to that just based on the way his arm swing is happening, and maybe that's something that the league gets used to. Uh, you know, this might be a thing where the video they've seen before and the experience that they've seen before doesn't match with what he's showing now, and it might take him a couple reps. I guess we'll see in the second half, uh, and I might caution against that, but I, I think the changeup, what's good for him is, like, it's more repeatable. I think it's less... He can throw it when he's behind the count. I think the problem with this curveball, being fastball curve, is that he's too, behind the count too often to where he didn't really drop in that curveball for strikes is more of a chase pitch and there's no reason to chase it when hitters were in a 2-1 count and saw something spinning so i think the changeup gives hitters something to be anxious about when he was previously in fastball counts he's not giving them a fastball anymore really good points and i know we spent a lot of time talking about lucas giulio but i think this is one of those in a rebuilding year we're looking for progress and i right now what we're watching from lucas giulio I think is a good starter. So hopefully this continues for Giolito. You touch on the Indians offense and the Indians offense. Uh, I am just not coming away very impressed. And I'm a bit worried for the Cleveland Indians chances of maybe catching the Minnesota twins who are playing red hot right now. They got the best record in major league baseball. Uh, but with the Indians offense, is that why Ivan Nova looked so good on Monday or did you see something different from Nova in this start? Uh, I think he threw more changeups than I thought. Basically, the whole game plan it seemed like, at least from the uh, from the right-handed starters, Gilito Lopez and uh, uh, and, and Nova were just fastballs and changeups. And I thought Nova's path to success might be more based on his cutter. He was getting uh, weak contact off that relative to his other pitches. His curveball wasn't doing much. His fastball wasn't doing much. The cutter seemed to be catching hitters off balance. So I thought maybe. Any hot streak would be based around that pitch, but instead they went change up and it seemed to work. Um, so I, I guess that's the case where maybe his changeup is better than we give him credit for, and it's enough to keep him off, uh, you know, hitters off the, the, I guess, the four-seamer. The two-seamer was, I, I guess he was more four-seamer or changeup than he was before. He wasn't trying to get ground balls so much as weak contact. Maybe that's something for him, but I think that's the case where with the Indians that, uh, whatever works against them might not work against the bulk of the other teams. I, mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, they're pretty much the bottom of the barrel in terms of the American league. Maybe, uh, the only one is Toronto who might be giving them a run for the money, but right now it's a uh, kind of a nice part of the schedule for white Sox starters to figure things out. Yeah. Because hell week is coming up later this month and that's May 20th to the 26th in which the white Sox have seven straight games on the road against the Houston Astros and the Minnesota Twins. So hopefully these guys get into rhythm. Uh, you mentioned as far as the strategy for right-handed starters, and you touched on Ronaldo Lopez. And I don't think Ronaldo Lopez looks sharp in his start, Jim. But if he's going to only allow three earned runs over six in innings of work, and he can consistently do that, I'll take it. 
I think that's what this starting rotation needs right now. I think this is what the White Sox need right now, especially with what they're dealing with, with all the injuries and with their pitchers and not being totally confident with the bullpen, even though the bullpen, uh, I thought it pitched well. I mean, I know Kelvin Herrera gave up the walk-off home run, but Aaron Bummer's been throwing the ball really well. But, you know, with Lopez, can he use that same strategy? Can he use the same strategy as Lucas Giolito, where he throws a lot of change-ups? I think he can. I think he's done it before. I think the thing with Lopez is that he's, his fastball is always going to be his bread and butter. I don't think his change-up is going to be a put-away pitch as more as a set-up pitch for spotting the fastball or riding it up, you know, spotting it on the outside corner to righties or riding it up and in or vice versa. I think with the problem with his start against the Indians was his fastball is kind of flat and it wasn't really where he wanted to throw it. And also I think, you know, with Lopez movements more key than I guess command, uh, especially because his velocity is fine. I think his velocity was 95, 97, which is where it's been. I think it's more of a matter of with him is that he, uh, throws it with life. When he's got the life, then, I mean, when he's spotting it, that's great. When he's not spotting it, like we talked about with Giolito's changeup, it's just never quite where hitters are expecting it, and it's really hard for them to square it up and with any kind of meaningful damage. You know, it's more of the long lines of regular fly balls than um, you know anything going over the fence or line drives, rockets to the corner, anything along those lines. So that's why I think with Giolito's, like it seems, or uh, with Lopez, is that his... Uh, his fastball command, his fastball mechanics, I guess the way he's letting it go, you're staying on top of it versus, you know, coming off the side of it. Uh, that seems to be his biggest battle right now. And, and it seems to be something that you would think could be, you know, if, if Giolito can shorten his arm swing and, and make his big, you know, big body, long limbs more repeatable than Lopez, who has a more compact package and uh, fewer moving parts and, you know, I guess a simpler approach to pitching should be able to iron it out too, whether he's, you know, all pitchers are different, whether he's that coachable or whether his, his muscle memory is that good, you know, is remains to be seen. But I think that really is the biggest issue is just his fastball mechanics. How about Manny Benuelos? Are we done now with the Manny Benuelos starting experiment or because the White Sox have no other options, he's going to have to continue to start? Oh, I mean, that's what I was going to say is like, who, if not him, then who? Right. I, so I mean, that's, I, that's the point. I mean, but in his last seven, in his last two outings covering seven innings, it's 14 earned runs he's allowed. Yeah. But I think he's had two good ones, two bad ones. Good. Uh, I think three good three inning long relief outings. So there's still reason to run him out there. You know, even if he, they did have somebody really knocking on the door and demanding those starts. Between Dylan Covey and, and, and Manny Banuelos, it's going to be battling back and forth. <laughs> I guess which one you like better in a certain week. I, I, I don't know if either one has the edge. And Banuelos, he seemed to be, you know, he thought he was tipping pitches. And when you see 10 straight guys reach base, there might be something to that. Uh, it's his first time getting extended run in a uh, big league rotation. I think he should get, you know, a month to bounce back from bad starts to see if he can adjust. And if he can't adjust, then, you know, you wait till the end of May and maybe you see if uh, Dylan Cease is throwing 90 to 100 pitches with regularity in Charlotte and if he's ready to come up. Okay. I I think the only reason why he's still starting, and just like Dylan Covey as well, is because the White Sox obviously don't have anyone right now in Charlotte. I mean, Yes, we know about Dylan Cease, but clearly the White Sox have a plan in place right now, and they're limiting his pitches, and they're limiting the amount of innings that he's throwing, that they're preparing for him at some point to come 
and join the White Sox starting rotation. But yeah, the lack of depth, I'm just a bit concerned. Hopefully this doesn't continue to happen because if these types of starts continue, the White Sox could see a lot of losing coming up, especially if Lucas Giolito and Ronaldo Lopez uh, have bad performances or they just have rough starts. Because then you can just have five straight bad starts and we're back where we were a couple weeks ago where it's like the starting pitching is failing the offense. But speaking of the offense, uh, the offense in April was above average, which is great. Uh, In May, we're starting to see, I don't know if this is regression, Jim. I don't know if this is just some cold snaps, slumps, however you want to call it. Uh, but Tim Anderson, so far in the month of May, in 10 games, is 6-for-34 hitting. That's a 176 batting average. He has no extra base hits in his last 10 games. Uh, and he has 6 strikeouts to 3 walks. Yoan uh, Makata is not much better. He's 8-for-39 uh, in the month of May, uh, which is a 205 batting average. Uh, and he's slugging 308. He's got a double and a home run, uh, but Makata has struck out 16 times already in this month, just to two walks. Uh, Yonder Alonso still cold. He's five for 34 this month, uh, and there was a lot of chatter in this series when the lineups were released on Twitter that White Sox fans were a bit confused. I was one of them. I did not know why Nicky Delmonico was batting second. And why Tim Anderson, the reigning player of the month, was batting seventh. Uh, obviously, looking at the main numbers, I I get a better understanding why uh, the lineups may be opti- uh, configured that way. But I want to ask you, when it comes to Rick Renteria, and this was a conversation we had a lot when Robin Ventura was manager, we were concerned that Robin Ventura wasn't optimizing the lineup to the best of its abilities for each and every single game. Do you think... Rick Renteria is doing a good job optimizing the lineup. Well, I don't think it matters so much for the Renteria. I mean, Ventura was trying to win in three of his five years. He he didn't do it, but he was trying to win. And and so you're trying to, when every plate appearance matters, then I think it draws more attention to it. But right now, the White Sox are trying to develop still. And I think when it comes to the lineup, I think he had a, he's had a few things in mind. I think Mankata, part of his rough May is the fact that they really faced a lot of left-handed starters, like an unusual amount of left-handed starters for, especially for the AL Central, which hasn't had many of them. And so I think that's part of the reason he's come back down to earth. I think Anderson's more being bombarded with so slow stuff, and he's had to stay back and try poking balls to right field more. He hasn't really had anything to drive, and that's not really going great for him. But I think, you know, when, when looking at the lineup, it seems like plan A was to have Yonder Alonso being a credible cleanup hitter slash fifth hitter, whatever you want to call him. And maybe Wellington Castillo being a 20 homer guy in the middle of the lineup, you know, maybe not a traditional fifth hitter, but in a thin lineup, you know, you might play him there and he wouldn't look completely out of place. But I think when they're both failing, then the question is like, do you want to bring Anderson up? Do you want to uh, forsake lefty, righty, lefty. And I think when you're facing Terry Francona, you always want to maintain righty, lefty balance because he'll just keep changing pitchers. You want to make it hard on Francona, somebody who goes to lefties and righty specialists a lot to have to do that, to not be able to coast through an inning with just one guy. I think so that's part of the lineup concern. And part of it too, is just, you know, when you have tough righties in there to try to spare Anderson and, and, and try to keep him from, you know, having to be in the most important spots when he's still, not a fully finished product against right-handed 
pitching, especially good righties. So I think that's really what it comes down to. And, and given how long the season is and uh, I guess how important Moncada and Anderson and others are, that you really just want to see them put in position to succeed. And if others are put in positions to fail and they're not, yeah, and their failure really isn't that important in the big picture, then so be it. You know, I, I think uh, there's they're not really watching the standings and they're not really gunning for it. So uh, any kind of marginal value, and this is very marginal value, any kind of batting order. I mean, you could probably do a randomization and come around to the same amount of runs in a game um, by and large. Uh, I don't think the marginal value is that important to try to, you know, front load the lineup with non-elite hitters and then just have a back of the lineup that just does nothing. I think you and I disagree on this one. I think it's important, even if they're not in a position to win, that they still do the best to optimize the lineup. And I think that Mikata and Anderson need to bat in the top half. They need more plate appearances in each of these games. And yeah, I'd rather have Anderson right now bat fifth than a Wellington Castillo. Uh, James McCann, maybe not because James McCann may be going to the all-star game if he keeps playing at this pace. Uh, he's having a terrific start uh, to 2019. And yeah. I, you make a good point with Yonder Alonso and Wellington Castillo. I mean, Wellington Castillo, he's only played four games in May, but he's one for 15 with 10 strikeouts. I mean, yeah. that that's that's awful. Yeah, I guess it's just when it comes to batting orders, I've been writing this my 14th season doing it, and I've written a lot about about a lot of things that haven't ended up mattering, and batting order is one of them. I think yeah, I think there's a case when uh, you're running guys out in the second spot or leadoff spot that don't get on base for Jose Abreu, and then you want to bat Abreu second because just get one of those guys out of the way. That's important when you're trying to win games, but I think when mm-hmm. it comes to a rebuilding team and Tim Anderson, who could very well be a 280 on base percentage guy, we don't know these. I mean, he was not that in April. I think he's a bit better than that, but he hasn't proven that he's better than that when he's showing signs of being somebody who is getting himself out and hitting, you know, tapping balls on the ground and not running them out. You know, not not because of hustle, just he's not able to beat out these grounders he's hitting. Um you know, he could be the guy who shouldn't have any business in the top of the order. Um, so I, I guess that's what I, I, I kind of look at it is we don't know what Tim Anderson is yet. And I don't blame Renteria if he's not convinced or he's not going to try to force him into a spot to where he needs to be an on-base guy. I think it's more a matter of Anderson has to show it for a half, maybe, you know, at least a couple months to where okay. he's a, a reliable on-base guy before you put him in a role where seeing pitches and getting on base and not hitting grounders is important. And it would help if Eloy Jimenez was around, obviously yeah. in the middle of the lineup. I I think you are right, Jim. In a year or two, when we're talking about hopefully a White Sox team trying to win, Tim Anderson is hitting seventh in the lineup because I think you are right. He's a low OBP guy, but he's got really good speed and he's got good pop, more pop than you would expect from a, from the shortstop position. And, you know, that can be dangerous in the bottom half of the lineup when starting pitchers may want to take it a little bit more of a relaxed approach because they're not facing a team's best hitters. Uh, I just, I don't know. I disagree. I think at this moment it'd be best just to have Tim Anderson get more plate appearances during the week. Uh, but I think ultimately you're going to be right in the sense that when this team is winning, Tim Anderson is batting seventh, maybe even eighth. Or if everyone really starts hitting and panning out, maybe he's the number nine hitter. Who knows? 
Um, but yeah, right now for the White Sox offense, they're off to a slow start uh, to begin May. Is that going to keep up through this weekend series in Toronto? We're going to find out. But before we preview the upcoming series against the Toronto Blue Jays, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. The ticket industry hasn't changed in a long time. There are a bunch of big companies who have been around forever, but don't really care about making the experience easier for the customer. And I think you guys know some companies online when you try to buy tickets straight from the team or straight from the theater, and then you get hit with all these additional fees that you didn't have the upfront costs. It's just a terrible experience. Well, SeatGeek is a ticket company where the customer comes first. With more than 50,000 five-star reviews in the App Store, SeatGeek is focused on making your experience as easy as possible. And this is how it works. SeatGeek pulls in millions of tickets from all over the web. They rate each deal on a scale of 1 to 10 and displays them on an interactive seat map so you can see what your seats look like, or at least the view, if you're, especially if you're you're visiting a new stadium. So it's simple to find what you're looking for. The green dots are good deals. The red dots, they're overpriced. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets with confidence. And with more and more stadiums switching over to digital tickets, SeatGeek using the app on your smartphone, those tickets upload to your smartphone. You can even transfer them over to the iPhone wallet, Apple wallet, or even uh, the Google Pay app if you have an Android smart device. And best of all, Sox Machine listeners, you get $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Just use our promo code SOXMACHINE. That's promo code SOXMACHINE for $10 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. And as I mentioned, the Chicago White Sox now head to Toronto to face the Toronto Blue Jays. And the Blue Jays are scuffling a bit. They have lost five straight games. They're currently fourth place in the American League East. Their record is worse than the White Sox at the moment. They're 15-22. and 22. Offensively, uh, a bit cold. They are only averaging 3.6 runs per game. On the run prevention side, uh, I think this number was a bit surprising. They're doing better than what I was expecting them to. Uh, they're only allowing 4.3 runs per game. So we may get a lot of games where the score is 5 to 4 in this upcoming series. And your pitching probables for this series again, the first game's at 6:07 p.m. Central Time. This game's going to be on WGN TV. It is Dylan Covey for the White Sox against Clay Buchholz for the Toronto Blue Jays, the former Boston Red Sox starter. On Saturday, this is a 2:07 p.m. Central Time start. It is Ivan Nova for the White Sox against Marcus Stroman. Stroman's got a 2.96 ERA, but he's 1 in 5 on the year. That's why the win-loss record doesn't really matter a whole bunch. Stroman's been pitching very well for the Blue Jays early this year. And then on Sunday, I feel like this is an intriguing matchup here at 12.07 p.m. Central Time. It is Lucas Giolito against Aaron Sanchez, which Aaron Sanchez has a 1.59 ERA at home. Um, But with this series, Jim, I, I was excited to see Vlad Jr. But however, Vlad Jr. appears to be struggling more than Eloy Jimenez did to start this year. Is it too much hype too soon when it comes to Vlad Jr.? Uh, I, I guess it's like Jimenez, where it's a surprise that he's struggling. There's nothing saying he should based on his AAA performance. So you carry that over and think, uh, you know, just maybe he's having his slump, you know, getting a slump out of the way, the way, you know, some of the elite young hitters, they've you know hit the ground running and then slumped two months in. You know, maybe that's kind of just the weird order of things, but haven't really seen too much of them. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. And uh, uh, yeah, the Blue Jays are a bit weird. They have a really good back end of the bullpen. They have some good starters. Um, 
they do walk a lot of guys, so there are the opportunity. There's the opportunity for the White Sox to get some walks where they haven't before. Um, they don't hit, so there's that too. Unless Vlad Jr. starts, so uh, there's an opportunity for Dylan Covey to have another decent outing to where he goes five innings, maybe six. Von Nova to have two good ones in a row. So uh, there are opportunities for the White Sox there if they can take them. Also looking forward to Stroman versus Anderson, which was a subplot last year. And um, I, I would have thought more of it, but Stroman came to Anderson's defense when Anderson was suspended for getting hit by Brad Keller and uh, was suspended for his language. And Stroman being an African-American, um, you know, a prominent African-American baseball player and uh, uh, sticking up for uh, a fellow, I, I, yeah, when minority, but just in a fading minority and, and, and trying to... Uh, bolster african-american influence and fans in the game you know he stood up for anderson had his back so that was an unlikely alliance and i'm curious to see whether you know when they meet again if there's going to be uh what it was last year or if there's going to be more of a uh an amicable nature between the two of them so how do you think this series goes you think that the white Sox could win this series or is this a situation where they lose two out of three i think they can win two out of three um buckholes is I hope they not come out of the game fast because he's hard to watch. Uh, works slow and is uh, throws a lot of pitches and yeah, just it's not enjoyable. So I hope they they knock him out of the game. So I could see that one being uh, lopsided or not lopsided, but just a high scoring game that the White Sox win. Um, yeah, I could see him winning two out of three. Sanchez is he's good, but he walks a lot of guys, and I think the White Sox can just get a couple hits to where um, I think they'll have base runners against them. So more of a matter of if they can take advantage of pitches up in the zone, and yeah, maybe it'll work out. They surprised me against Bauer, so I think they can take one against Stroman or Sanchez. And it'd be nice if it's Anderson and Mikata start warming up, uh, and then they can get back on track in this month of May. And, uh, yeah, we'll recap as far as that series for Monday's Sox Machine podcast. Uh, but before we go on this edition of Sox Machine Live, I wanted to touch on Albert Pujols. Jim Pujols reached 2,000 RBIs for his career. And, you know, just trying to fathom 2,000 RBIs, that's like a hitter having 16 straight 125 RBI seasons. I mean, it's such an incredible career. Uh, the fan that caught the ball, it was a, it was a home run on that Pujols reached the milestone against the Detroit Tigers today, uh, took the ball and ran, <laughs> didn't, didn't exchange it, didn't give it back, didn't get it authenticated. So whoever you are, sir, uh, it would have been probably better if you just stuck around and maybe gave the ball back or maybe exchanged some autographs or some photo opportunities. Uh, but with the, the ball not being authenticated, you're not going to be able to sell it. Um, but I guess I think I saw something on Twitter to where his brother was an Albert Pujols fan. Oh, so he's going to give it to his brother, but I'm not sure. I think I saw that in passing. So I can't say that was, that was the one thing where I thought like, Oh, maybe it means a lot to him or somebody he knows. And that would be the biggest explanation. And I think it would be kind of, yeah, it's not something I would do. I would at least want to get it authenticated, but the fact, yeah, it's old fashioned, just not thinking of everything as, memorabilia or or something to protect and sell but something to share is kind of like oh that's kind of quaint so i'd like to kind of see that so i'm going with uh, quaint yeah i'm 100 with you get a selfie with Pujols, man holding the ball i mean that is a photo that you'll cherish for the rest of your life when you're talking about baseball uh that's how i would handle it i'm not a big autograph hound anymore um, but maybe we'll see i'm sure 
I'm sure people will try to dig deeper and find out what's going on with this story. Um, but with Pujols reaching 2,000 RBIs, I pose this question to you, Jim, because obviously we're around the same age. We have seen Albert Pujols from his rookie year in St. Louis and become the machine and have this storied career. Is he the best first baseman of all time? He could be. I, I don't think he's the most dominant first baseman. Uh, there, he's been well, in St. Louis days. <laughs> if he could, if he could have carried that, I guess longer, he might have been. You know, had an argument for one of the best players of all time. He's faded with the Angels and had foot problems, and because when he was with St. Louis, he had power. He had average. He drew more walks and strikeouts. He. Uh, uh, you couldn't get him out at the plate. He could run the bases pretty well. He was a great defender. So he had everything you want from a first baseman. Hasn't been able to deliver at that with the Angels, but I think if you you know, include his peak and you really just remember what he was with St. Louis and, and how well he did everything he could ask a first baseman to do, uh, in the modern era against the pitchers he faced, uh, you know, the velocity and, and the bullpens and everything like that, Probably, you know, it feels like, you know, you might throw Lou Gehrig or something like that when it comes to, you know, season to season uh, dominance or, you know, the uh, incredible power numbers Gehrig had in that era and everything. But when it comes to the modern game, post-segregation um, with velocities, with bullpens, you know, with the variety of pitchers he's faced and how well he did, um, it, it would be hard to put anybody above him. Yeah, just in his career. I mean, his rookie year, he won He won rookie of the year, finished fourth in MVP. In 2002, finished second. 2003, second. Uh, 2004, third. 2006, second. 2010, second. I mean, he won the MVP three times, but he, if Barry Bonds wasn't a thing, uh, <laughs> maybe Pujols wins another two or even three MVPs in his career. I mean, it's just... Absolutely insane. In his career, Pujols had four, so eight, eight seasons with an OPS better than a thousand. Yeah. I mean, it's just absolutely insane. He's a surefire Hall of Famer. It's just sometimes, you know, you, you talk to, you know, older baseball fans and, you know, they remember players that played well and they were in their prime of their careers well before I started comprehending baseball. I really didn't comprehend baseball until 1991. So for those that are looking for a reference point, uh, but it, I just sometimes it's amazing about that. You know, we saw great starters in their prime of their careers, Jim and Greg Maddox and Randy Johnson and Roger Clemens. And we saw Barry Bonds do his thing, but with Albert Pujols and Mike Trout, we can maybe say, yeah, we saw two of the best that's ever played the game, especially at least at their positions. When you look at Pujols, yeah, I'm looking at his numbers, 2009, uh, 327 average, 443 OBP, 658 slugging, so that's an 1100 OPS. But I mean, like beyond that, he struck out only 64 times in 160 games <laughs> and he stole 16 bases in 20 attempts. Yeah. Like, he was good at everything, uh, you know, within reason. You're not going to have, like, a total speedster at first base, but he knew how to run the bases. He, uh, you know, he defended his position gold glove caliber. Like, there's just nothing he couldn't do. And, uh, you know, that's – and when I went to uh, – I went to school in Missouri, and so 2001 and 2004, that was when I was there, and that's when he was just emerging – and you just watch him, and, you know, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> and in seeing him emerge with that and just seeing the fan base take to him, I mean, I'm looking at 2005, uh, you know, 16 for 18 in stolen base attempts. Yeah. 
Like, like it was just nuts how he could, uh, you know, see the game in a way that others couldn't process it. So, you know, that it's kind of reminds me of, you know, Frank Thomas, just you know, how good of a hitter he was in the 90s. And then, you, were, you know, other fans remember him from being kind of a gimpy DH type. But when he was at the height of his powers, there was nobody like him. And I think, uh, you know, Pujols fits that description, especially in his run with St. Louis of just how do you get him out? How do you even, you know, what's his weakness uh, for a first baseman? He had none. Yeah. In 2004, he had 99 extra base hits, Jim. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm ecstatic if someone on the White Sox gets 60 extra base hits in a season. He had 99. Just incredible. I think it's what Albert Bell did with, the, with yeah. his big year at the Sox. Yeah. 51 doubles, 46 homers, two triples in 2004 for Albert Pools. But I mean, just such a phenomenal career. Again, I mean, if he retired this year, he is a surefire first ballot Hall of Famer. No matter when he decides to hand it up and walk away from the game of baseball in five years, Albert Pujols uh, is going to the Hall of Fame. So congratulations to Pujols for reaching 2,000 RBIs. I don't know when we're going to see that again. Uh, Miguel Cabrera is slowing down. He's around 1,600 at the moment. Uh, and maybe uh, his final days as a everyday regular Major League player, uh, at least productive enough uh, to drive in more than 100 runs, uh, probably – distant at this moment as far as reaching that goal. Uh, but just uh absolute terrific career for Albert Pujols. Great career milestone. And uh, it's always fun to look back at the great players and just see their, their crazy numbers. And like I said, yeah, five years after he retires, he'll be in Cooperstown in the Hall of Fame. But that will do it for this edition of Sox Machine Live. Thank you guys so much, especially for those that listen to the live stream on Mixler.com slash Sox Machine. If you don't get a chance to listen to the live stream, no worries. Each Sox Machine Live is uploaded to the podcast feed the very next day, and you can subscribe to the Sox Machine podcast via iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Audioboom.com slash Sox Machine. Sox Machine Live is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Have a terrific weekend. Look forward to talking to you guys on Monday, recapping the Blue Jays series. Thanks for listening. Me, 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 but also you. The Pharaoh fast-forwards his favorite foreign film, Powder Donut. <clears throat> Okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm going to need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.